Okay, guys, I'm going to give you a, a very quick two-minute warning while I give my introduction so that we can, can get moving. Um, so every time I get up to preach, I, I think it's a really good opportunity for me to, to share a little bit more about, about me. I know, I know some of you guys know me really well. Others don't know me quite as well. So um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders at Real Life Church. I'm married to Becky, who is walking in right now. There she is, um, with a fresh cup of coffee. And, oh, no coffee. And um, we have three children, two in youth, one that's just finished his GCSEs and is now wondering what he's going to do for the next two million weeks. Um, and one in year nine and a little year seven, uh, seven-year-old who's in, in children's church at the moment. Um, but one thing maybe you didn't know about me is that I absolutely love surfing. I've, I've been surfing since I was 12 years old. I grew up on the coast in South Africa and um, yeah, I started surfing a little bit later than I wanted to. I was trying to convince my parents that surfing was a good thing. They kept on telling me that surfboards were too expensive. I found out um, when I was older that that wasn't the real reason they didn't want me surfing. It was more about the people who surfed that they didn't necessarily want me hanging out with. Um, but despite their fears, I got through relatively unscathed. Um, and I still love surfing to this day. I now live as far away from the sea as you can be in the United Kingdom, um, but I'm still faithfully following the, uh, the World Surfing Tour on my WSL app. So if any of you want to follow surfing, it's really easy in this day and age. All of the World Championship competitions are filmed live, and then you get a heat-by-heat -heat replay after that, and you can stay in touch with the whole thing. But anyway, last week... They were back in South Africa. They were at a place called Belito, which is very close to where Ryan lived. And I just got a kick out of listening to the South African commentators. Um, it's, it's, it's a weird thing. And I don't know how many of you can relate to this, but when I lived in South Africa, I didn't notice my own accent. Does that make sense? I didn't notice my own accent uh, or the accent of my friends. I didn't notice their tone of voice or their turn of phrase, or their, their body language. But since living in the UK, the uniqueness of South African communication has become more and more apparent. And um, the funniest thing for me while listening to these guys was, was not the very direct phrasing, like, sit down now, you know, right now, um, or the very clipped vowels. It wasn't any of that. It was, it was the strange turns of phrase and, and the, the number of mixed metaphors that they could fit into one sentence. And you're kind of like going, hang on. It doesn't make as much sense to me as it used to. Um, and the interesting thing, or what I'm trying to say really, is that when you're surrounded by a culture, you don't really see it or its effects on you and your behavior. It's hard to notice. But when you step out of that culture for a period of time, its unique idiosyncrasies become glaringly apparent to you. And in a way, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to use the Bible to help us step out of our own culture. All of us live in a culture, and we don't even notice because it's pervasive and it blends so naturally with our own ways of thinking and acting, and it's been with us from, the very, from before we were born. 
But part of being a Christian is to step out of that culture, step out of the culture you were born into, and to observe it and ourselves from a very different perspective. John 17, verse 16, while Jesus was praying to his Father, he said these words of his disciples, of us. He said, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And I believe that this is is part of what the Word of God achieves in our lives. It achieves a lot of things in our lives, but part of what it does is it doesn't just help us to see Jesus clearly, but it helps us to see ourselves clearly. And then it challenges us to change, to become more and more like the Jesus that we're seeing more and more clearly as we spend time in the Bible. I love the Bible. That's one of the reasons why I love the Bible. I also love sandwiches. Um, So, you know, that's the thing. How do you like yours? I'll tell you what. When it comes to sandwiches, I'm very, very open-minded. I'm I'm probably the most liberal sandwich eater on the face of the planet. Basically, if it pops, I'll eat it. I don't go for bland, boring sandwiches, you know, like cheese with butter on white bread. Not my thing. Now, this isn't everyone's problem. That's my problem. I know some people like that. They don't call it bland. They call it uncomplicated. For me, it's bland. Okay? So I like a bagel with salmon and cream cheese on it or or maybe scrambled eggs and capers. I love a panini with camembert and rocket and cranberry sauce. Um, Equally, I enjoy a Hero Prego roll, which is really just chunks of medium-rare steak stuffed into a roll with um, spicy tomato salsa and fried onions. Quite happy with that. But I think, actually, to be quite honest with you, my favorite sandwich is a rump steak covered with cheese and then drenched in mushroom sauce. I wasn't expecting that reaction. Anyway, okay, so, so that's my sandwich. Now, okay, it's not a sandwich, but if you, if you want to get legalistic with me, slap a piece of bread on the top and the bottom and eat it. Or you know what? What would be better is if you put it into a freshly baked uh, rosemary and olive oil sheer butter. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. That's how I like my sandwiches. Um, and... Talking about sandwiches, I'd love to hear from a couple of other people about how they would like their sandwiches and also how they get on with prayer and reading the Bible. So, Fliss, Johnny, if you want to pop up. to Mike who is today on uh, a shift at Partners Hospital because he's a doctor Um, and we have three children who are 10, 8 and 6 and in church we uh, lead the marriage course um, and also I am a kids worker on the years 1 to 3, well year groups 1 to 3 team Um, and at home I basically make our homework so I'm a at home um, and I work quite hard but I don't get paid um, and in terms of sandwiches uh, I don't really eat bread very much I'm not that tolerant of it but this is my public declaration, declaration that my favourite sandwich is a Big Mac yes um, 
and that's pretty much one of the only things that will get me eating bread. Um, my second secret is that often on the first day after I take the kids back to school when it's been holidays, I go and get a drive through and sit in the car park on my own and eat it. Uh, <laughs> um, so now you all know where I will be, but I'm not going to tell you which McDonald's I go to. Um, in terms of Bible and prayer, so we've been asked to share when, how and where we read our Bibles and the same for praying. Um, I, when I was growing up, always used to read my Bible first thing in the morning and as a student I did that too, but then having children realised that that didn't really work anymore. And I always sort of wanted to give God the best bit of my time, so that used to be the first thing in the morning. But more recently, I've thought about what it means to give God the best bit of my time. And actually, for me, the best bit of my time is when I get to sit down on my own and have a hot chocolate or just enjoy the quiet. And that can be at any point during the day. So in the winter, it often is the moment where I sit down and make myself a really nice drink, get a blanket and just sit in my favourite space in our front room and in the summer sometimes it's sitting out in the garden in the sunshine because those are my favorite bits of the day so I and they're kind of the bits that the that I want to make happen so I sort of think if I link up my bible reading with the things that I just enjoy it's more likely to happen um, if during the day that doesn't happen then I read my bible in bed at night so that's kind of my fallback um, before I go to sleep uh, I read the New Living Translation because, again, having children, I, when they were younger, I found that that was just the easiest to access for me. Um, and recently I've bought myself a really whopping great big Bible because I increasingly can't read easily without my glasses. So if I sit down without my glasses and I can't read it, then I have to get up again and go and find my glasses. So it just puts more stuff in the way. So I've got a really great big Bible. I think it might even be officially a large print Bible. Um, and how I read it, I, um, I read one book at a time. So I just choose a book. I pray before I start choosing, ask God to speak to me about a good book to read. And then I just read it. And I tend to read really slowly. And like Becca said last week, I will often reread the same passage again and again for a few days because I don't want to just read it for the sake of it I want it to have an impact on me and for that reason as well I always try and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to me as I'm reading because I find that makes all the difference in me encountering God in what I read um, prayer I um, I try and pray at the same time as I read my Bible so I will um, I, like, I like sending texts to friends and asking them what I can be praying for and then having my phone with me so that I can pray for those things and try and make time for that because I know it's easy to say you'll pray for stuff and not but I'm trying to make more time for that at the same time as I read my bible and then also just try and pray with people in the moment as well I think that's a really good discipline to just be encountering God more is to pray when the moment arises and not always put it off till later that's mm. it. brilliant okay. hey guys uh, for those that don't know me my name's Johnny I'm married to Abby we have two lovely kids, Tyler and Ethan. Um, I'm a firefighter. I've been doing that for almost a year now, working out of West Bromwich Fire Station. Um, I used to do kids' work um, on a Sunday, but due to my shift pattern, that had to change. So now I just sort of help out with events and wherever I can, really. Um, Sandwich-wise, this is so tricky. I've been thinking about this all week. This is, so, <laughs> this is like 
it's such a big decision for me. It's like so hard. I know. It's like basically, sorry for the vegetarians, but anything with meat on it, and I'm, 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 I'm happy. And, and the fatter the sandwich, the better, basically. And it has to have a good sauce on it, so like a, maybe a sweet chili chutney or something like that. But um, yeah, just give me meat and, and I'll be happy. <laughs> um, right, so reading. Um, so b- because of my shift pattern, I don't have a set time of the day when I'll read. So, um, but basically I just try and it in somewhere um, when possible. Um, I'm currently reading the Bible in a year, so I'm using the Read the Scriptures app. Um, but I'm also, I've got two apps on the go. Another one is uh, um, a Bible app which you can use as an audio version. So I find a really good time. With two boisterous boys, it's really hard to find peace and quiet a lot of the time at, at home. And um, when it comes to night nighttime, I'm knackered. So if you see before bed, I can't just go to bed and just read. I'm just too tired, and I find that I don't actually take it in. So um, I try and get my reading done either the morning, um, afternoon, or early evening. Um, so as I say, I'm using the, the Read the Scriptures app to read the Bible in a year. I'm six months through, so I'm halfway there. Um, so I find a good time for me is on the commute to work. I find that I can concentrate, obviously still while still concentrating on the road, but I'll use the audio version to, um, to listen to that. Um, then, if it is peaceful in the house, um, I, I'll take myself up to my bedroom, I'll read there, or I find on, on my lunch break, whenever we don't have a shout, um, a job, um, I'll, I'll, I'll read, I'll take myself off to a quiet room as well. Um, I find it um, easier just to pray straight after as well. Um, and also, if I get a text or if I have a WhatsApp group and, and people have asked for prayer in certain areas, I'll, I'll do it straight after rather than saying, oh, I must remember to do that later. Uh, so, yeah, that's when I mm. do that. Is that cool? Good, great. Thank you very much, Johnny. Right. Okay, excellent. Thanks, guys. Okay, so we're all different. I think um, one day when, when we're worshipping Jesus in eternity, I'd like to imagine that, that he'll ask us all to just slowly turn around and, and look at all of his children worshipping him. And um, what we're not going to see is a, a sea of faces. We're going to see how different they all are. They're from all parts of the world. They'll be all different shapes and sizes. They'll be used to singing different songs and meeting in different buildings or, or no buildings at all. They'll be speaking different languages. They'll be painters. They'll be poets. They'll be builders. They'll be accountants. They'll be engineers and teachers and rocket scientists and university professors and rural farmers. And <clears throat> the list goes on and on and on. But no matter how different we are, there are some things that need to be the same. And um, they have to be the same. Like the one thing that will unify us when we're there worshipping, the same Jesus. And we're all filled with the same Spirit. And we all have the same Father. And we're all rescued by the wonderful power of the same Gospel. And for me, the reading of the Bible is, is one of those things that remains, remains firmly in the category of, of constants, 
We can't let reading of God's Word become an, op- an optional thing that, um, that Word people do. Um, John Calvin said this, he said, God does not bestow His Spirit on His people in order to set aside the use of His Word, but rather to render it fruitful. And that's massive. Um, somebody else that I spoke to often said, you know, you, you can't have the Word and the Spirit separately. Um, the Spirit does His work best, and, and I'd like to say probably the only time He chooses to work is when the Word is in our lives as well, and He brings it alive. It becomes something that's more than just dead words on a page. It actually starts changing who we are and helps us to change the world around us. The Word is the fuel that the Spirit ignites to cause us to burn and be passionate. And um, we've got to get rid of this false dichotomy of you're either a spirit person or a word person. I've, I've even heard people say, do we really need all this theology? I just want to tell you a little secret. Even if you don't like theology, you have a theology. You just don't know it. You don't call it that. But you have a way of believing. And that's theology. So, do we need all of this theology? Um, You know, can't we just simply believe in God and trust in Him like children? And it's a tricky question. It frames it in such a way to put you at at odds with two truths. They actually work together. The implication of the question is either you trust God or you legalistically seek to understand the Bible. And let's be honest, the Bible says we should trust God. But the Bible also says that in trusting God, we should obey Him in doing what He tells us to do, which is to be immersed in His Word. So if we are going to be children that trust our Father, we are going to be children that do what He asks, and we're going to immerse ourselves in the Word. So even if you can't find any other reason for spending time in the Word of God, spend time in the Word of God because He says so, and He's your dad, and you say that you trust Him. Yeah? So, this thing of uh, you're either a, a spirit person or a word person, you don't get a choice if you're a Christian. You're both. And you need to get used to that. We may have different kinds of characteristics or, or um, traits or preferences, but you are both. You see, one of the most beautiful things about the Bible is that it never, ever changes. Everything else seems to. And one of the biggest wars that we fight today is, is against a thing called relativism. We're all affected by it. Um, it is constantly shaping our view of the world. It's shaping our view of ourselves, reality, and the truth. And I'm just going to give you one example of this very quickly. Jesus, the, the actual the word Jesus, is at the end of the day just a name. If you go to Spain, you'll find other people called Jesus, not just Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a name. It's a label. Many people say they believe in Jesus, but when you speak to them, you realize quite quickly that the Jesus they speak of doesn't sound like the Jesus you speak of. There's, there's sugar daddy Jesus. There's hippie Jesus. There's military fitness Jesus. Um, so someone wrote a book about Jesus being an airborne ranger. I haven't read it, so I'm not quite sure where he goes, and I'm sure there's some really good points, but um, hopefully you get where I'm going with this. Then there's Tony Robbins' Jesus. I know we're in England, and maybe some of you don't know who Tony Robbins is, but you surely know who that guy is with the thing around his head. Looks a bit like 
Stu did yesterday when he was climbing the mountain. Um, Tony Robbins is a motivational speaker in the States who has got somewhat religious status. Um, people follow him in a cult-like fashion. Um, there's therapist Jesus, and there's um, Gandhi Jesus. This one looks a little bit more like Buddha Jesus. There's vaguely effeminate Northern European Jesus. There's, there's Jewish Jesus. He was Jewish, but I don't think he wore a yarmulke. Um, there's there's a freedom fighter Jesus. There's social justice Jesus. You know, Jesus and Che Guevara, they like every first-year uni student's favorite people. Um, there's postmodern critical thinking Jesus. There's Afro-Caribbean Jesus. There's Muslim Jesus. There's golden tablets in America Jesus. I'll explain that one later. Um, and, and there's American Indian shaman Jesus. And those are just a few I could find. And that's just based on my experience of something. But you know what? The, that list goes on forever. So many people say they believe in Jesus, but really they believe in someone that looks more like themselves. And they reflect all of that onto the God that they call Jesus. Really, these are gods of their own making. These are like mini idols, and they call them Jesus. Um, they bear some resemblance to Jesus sometimes, and others bear absolutely no resemblance to him at all. Tim Keller says that um, our hearts are idol factories, and if we choose to not worship Jesus or not worship anything else, our hearts will manufacture idols at a pace that you cannot even believe and you won't even notice it until you get yourself back in the Word and it starts reflecting all of those things back at you. So there is no end to the number of Jesuses out there. And I, I suppose sometimes with Slim Shady we can kind of ask, will the real Jesus please stand up? You know, you get that sort of frustrated. Okay, you're talking about Jesus, but which Jesus are you talking about and which one is the real one? And that's what relativism does. It creates a world which is interpreted differently by everyone, and that becomes massively confusing. We observe the world, we observe people, we observe reality, we observe God through lenses which are colored with all of our own influences and preferences and cultural baggage and family background. But God's Word is so very, very effective in cutting through this confusion and laying bare the reality of the situation. And that's where we're at with about 10 minutes to go. Uh, so if we can just have a, a look at the text. Guys, we're in 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 to 17. The, um, the text I want to focus on is, is 16, but... Really, to get there, you need to understand the context. So, if we can read through this together. This is Paul writing to Timothy, who is um, establishing elders in a church. And Timothy has um, been raised in a, a, a family where he's learned the Scriptures, but he's also been discipled by Paul. And uh, in a way, Paul considers Timothy to be his spiritual son. It's quite important to understand that when we're reading this, because it colors the way we listen to Paul's words and advice. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So Paul's kind of reminding Timothy, yep, you might be looking around you and you might not be happy with what you see. Be happy with the fact that those that don't believe seem to be doing better than those that do. You, you may not be happy with the fact that as much as you're preaching the gospel and you're talking about how it can change the world, you're watching people that should know better being deceitful and trying to pull the wool over people's eyes and, and um, crooking the books to make an extra buck. You may not be happy with that. You may not be happy with the fact that um, as much as you're working for Jesus, the the universe, it seems that you're being picked on and persecuted the whole time. And he, he has this wonderful way of assuring um, Timothy that that's normal. That's what's to be expected. That's what will carry on happening. And then he says, but regardless of that, but as for you, Timothy, for you, the church, because this is a letter that's open for all of us to read now, for all those who are disciples, for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. That's the Scriptures. You have learned. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Timothy's parents and Paul going on. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I could just end it there because if you weren't sure if reading the Bible is an important part of uh, your Christian walk, Timothy, uh, Timothy has really got the message there from Paul, and I hope we have as well. But let me just break it down a little bit for you. As Christians, we believe a few things about the Bible, and it's good that you have these concepts clear in your mind, okay? So first of all, we believe that it's authoritative, and we believe that it's inerrant. Um, if you can bring up the, the Scripture passages as well. I'm not going to have time to read all of these, so take notes and go and have a check. Don't believe me. Go and check what I'm saying to you. But those passages will help you check. We believe that it's, in, it's authoritative. We believe the Bible is the final authority on everything, everything that it speaks about. This is because all the words in Scripture are God's words. Therefore, to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God directly. It's important there's a difference between authoritative and inerrant. We believe that it's inerrant, which basically means that the Scriptures in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. If you want to investigate this further, I didn't bring it with me, but um, I'd suggest you borrow a copy. Don't buy a copy. It's really expensive of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. He goes into this in great depth. What I would suggest you don't do is go and find out about it on the internet, okay? Just saying, fake news, yeah? For real this time, not just because I feel like it shouldn't be checked on. Um, but check out Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, really, really helpful. Um, 
Secondly, we believe that the Bible is clear. We believe that the Scriptures are 100% clear. Although some parts of Scripture are difficult to understand, Scripture in general is very easy to understand. It's clear, and its intended message can be understood with a basic reading. You don't need a doctorate in theology. You don't need to understand context. You don't need to understand first century Jewish traditions. You don't need any of that stuff. You don't need to know Greek or Hebrew. You don't need to have um, even divine revelations to have the Word of God opened up to you. It is clear enough that the message in the Word is 100% understandable. The Scriptures are written for common people not professional clergy. You can see that in the way the letters are written. Um, look in Philippians 1, 1 verse 1, and are to be shared amongst all other believers. If you look at Colossians 4 verse 16, he encourages them to share this letter with another group of believers and to check out the letter he wrote to them. If you ask God to help you and you are willing to follow what is read, it will be made clear. Thirdly, we believe that it's necessary. And um, by this, what we, we mean is that the Word of God is necessary for knowing the gospel. You can't know the gospel without seeing it or hearing it from the Word of God. It's necessary for maintaining a spiritual life and for knowing God's will. But it is not necessary for knowing that God exists. And um, there's plenty of scriptures to point out that the creation itself is enough evidence of God's existence. And it's not necessary to know something about God's character and moral laws. The Bible itself tells us that we see plenty of that in the creation itself. And then finally, we believe that it is sufficient. And by this we mean that the Bible contained all of the words um, of God that He intended for His people to know at every stage in redemptive history and that it now contains everything we need God to tell us about salvation, everything we need for trusting Him perfectly, and everything for obeying Him perfectly. Everything that you need is in the Bible. And that's a great encouragement. I know so many people that walk through life, so many Christians that walk through life and say, only I knew what the will of God was for my life. Can I tell you that you don't need to sit around waiting for something to drop out of heaven to tell you what His will is for you? It's also a great encouragement because I see a lot of people, a lot of Christians walking around with so much baggage around legalistic requirements that churches have imposed on them. Can I tell you another thing? If it's not in the Bible as an instruction, it's not sin to disobey it. Knowing your Word gives you great freedom and great liberty and a great ability to live out life for you. Stu last week um, spoke about the meta-narrative of the Bible and how the whole Bible points to Jesus. And he, he camped in the Old Testament a little bit, looking at um, how Jesus is revealed in theophanies and descriptions and prophecies. Um, and it was amazing to see. And, but as I alluded to, it's, it's, that's not all that the Bible does. It, it gives us an amazingly accurate, uh, timeless, unchanging description 
of the God that we serve. But what it also does is, is when we, we look at Jesus while we're reading our Bible, it turns into a mirror. So we're reading about Jesus, we're finding out about Him, and it starts showing us to ourselves. It becomes a reflection, and it becomes a remarkably accurate reflection. It's the most accurate, deeply penetrating mirror that we'll ever have. You know, sometimes, well, when I was younger, I think uh, people wise up when they get a bit older, but when I was younger, I heard a lot of people um, running away from responsibility and using this excuse, I just need to go and find myself. It's not me, it's you. No, I mean, it's not you, it's me. (laughs) I just need to go and find myself. I don't know who I am. I'm confused right now. Um, Can I tell you a little secret? Maybe you can tell your younger ones as they're getting to that stage where they want to go and find themselves. The longer you spend trying to find yourself, the less able you are to see yourself clearly. The less able you are to see who you really are. You become increasingly blind as you focus on yourself. And I know this is wisdom that the world teaches, but God teaches us differently. In Psalm 121, verse 1, verse 2, the psalmist writes, I lift up my eyes. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. So where does the psalmist look when he's trying to find himself? Up. To the Lord. He doesn't look to himself to discover who he is. If you look at the wisdom of Solomon, you'll see what happens when you try and discover who you are through worldly wisdom. And he laments it. He comes back to saying that knowledge of God is knowledge of self. So, you know, eat that, Buddha. Um, When we look at Jesus, we start, he starts to show us ourselves in the gentlest, most loving way. Doesn't pull any punches. The first thing he does is he shows us the bad news. There's no good news without bad news. We can't get away from it. It's very bad news. It's shockingly horrible bad news. He shows us that we can't climb the mountain ourselves. No matter how many other religions tell us, no matter how much humanism tells us that we can do this ourselves and we can reach our own utopia, that we can make everything right, that we can fix the environment, that we can fix society, we can't. We stumble at the first step over and over and over again. And he says to us, see it, accept it, confess it. If you don't believe it, I've written a testimony for you. It's called the Old Testament. Go and have a look at what people did when God gave them the opportunity to climb up the mountain themselves. They didn't fail once or twice, they failed non-stop for thousands of years. And then he shows us that he is not the last in a long string of rescue plans, that he's the only plan, and that the other things we see happening in the Old Testament are there to show us how bad our condition is. And then he shows us how utterly, completely, He deals with our inability to climb the mountain. He climbs down. He comes all the way down. And he comes to us, each of us personally, and he says, come. And then he shows us his father. And he shows us our eternal home. 
and He seals us with the Spirit, with an assurance that we are loved and accepted just as we are. But it gets so much better. He starts to show us how to climb the mountain, and He promises to continue guiding us all the way through our lives as we climb the mountain. No longer so that we might gain God's approval. We're no longer climbing this mountain so that we can get there and maybe Jesus will let us in. We're now climbing the mountain because He already loves us. That's what grace looks like. It loves you enough to save you where you are, but loves you too much to leave you there. It carries you up the mountain. And then He starts to gently turn the mirror onto us. And gradually we start to realize that all of that horrible condition that we like to externalize, that we see in the Old Testament, is not just an external condition. That even though we spent all our years at school trying to tell the teacher that we're not that bad and that Johnny's worse, it's our problem. It's not just the behavior of our ancestors that we're bearing the consequences of, but it's an internal condition. He shows us that we're all thoroughly infected by this thing called sin, which drives our thoughts, drives our attitudes and our behaviors, and we begin to grapple with the horror of knowing that we are the ones that worshipped a golden calf at the base of Mount Sinai, that we are the ones that grumbled in the desert while God was providing us food and our sandals didn't wear out. That we are the ones that demanded of God a king when he said, you'll have no king before me. That we are the ones that mocked and scoffed when Jesus was nailed on a cross for us. That we are the ones that pierced his side. It leaves us in no doubt of the fact that we are the ones that he had to die for. And all that time he sits next to us saying, yes, it's true, that is you. And at the same time, he's assuring us that he loves us, that despite our behavior, our attitudes, our thoughts, he died for us. And he reminds us that his father knows all of this about us already. He's not surprised by any of it. And in fact, he knows even more about us than we do, and he just hasn't chosen to reveal it to us yet. And there's no reason for us to hide from him. And the most amazing thing happens when he speaks to you like that. As we gaze upon his glory, and at the same time we're faced with our own revolting depravity, we're not driven to shame, but to wonder and to thankfulness and hopefulness and boldness and a willingness to live completely for the one who died for us when we hated him. And then he goes on and he tells us about our calling and purpose and how we are to live. And he does this all through his word, all through this book. Not one word that I just mentioned comes from anywhere but in here. And maybe that note that just fell out. He tells us all of that. 
here. This thing is so powerful. It's changed the world we live in. Even atheists today live with the consequences of what this has done to society. But can I tell you something? It doesn't work by osmosis. You don't pop that on a bookshelf or maybe even next to your bedside table and expect it to be effective. It's only effective when it lives inside your heart. And the only way it gets inside your heart is if you consume it. And today we have multitudes of ways of consuming this. Even if we don't like reading, we can listen. Excuse. That is the most powerful thing. During the Reformation, it was the most feared thing. People were afraid of it being translated into the language of the people because they didn't want people to read it because it's so dangerous. There are countries in the world today that will still persecute you and imprison you if you try to move one of these books into their country because of the trouble that it can cause. It's powerful. But it's... If it's on your mantelpiece, it's a gun in its holster. It really is sufficient. You want to know something? I'm not perfect yet. Not by any stretch of the imagination. Sometimes I tell Becky I am, especially when I'm trying to win an argument. Um, But she climbed Mount Snowden yesterday and I didn't, so, you know, she's better than me. Um, I'm not perfect. But something that is becoming more and more clear to me as I grow up in Christ is this. The more I spend time in God's Word, the easier it is to live free. And that's what I want for each and every one of you, to live free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It sounds like a lame statement, but really what that means is I've unshackled your chains, that I've unlocked the prison door so that you can leave not so that you can stay there. You can't sit inside your prison and go, way, I'm free. It's for freedom. Get out that I have set you free, that Christ has set you free. More than that, I want, to see, I want you to see what I see when I look at Jesus. When we sing songs that proclaim that only He deserves the glory... I want your heart to soar. Your heart soars when it hears the words of God. You know, it's amazing how when we sing certain songs, it's almost like everyone can sing in key. Have you ever experienced that? Like, I can't sing until that song comes on, then all of a sudden I can sing. Hey, that's the Spirit of God moving. You know what it's doing? It's burning. It's igniting the Word of God in those words. And that's why I love, love worship. Because even if you're not reading your Bible, I hope that worship's reading the Bible to you. And it's waking your heart up. I want your hearts to soar. I want you to sing in key. I want the roof to crash off the building when we sing songs of praise to our God. And we're going to do that now. So if the worship team can come up, um, I really believe that, that our primary response this morning needs to be praise and worship. We've got 15 minutes. Let's kick it out the park. Let's give God everything we've got. 
But while we're doing that, can I pray for us? There are a couple of things that, that we spoke about. Idolatry. If you want to find out a little bit more about modern idolatry, Tim Keller has a great book called Counterfeit Gods. I'm not going to plug them too much. If um, you really are finding reading the Bible difficult, get this really thick book. That's ironic. And have a read through that. How to Read the Bible, book by book. Okay, that's um, by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. And um, I particularly loved Beth Moore, um, Praying God's Word. Honestly, I haven't read it. Um, but it's a really good devotional that leads you through the Word of God and uses the Word of God to help you break or, or fight spiritual warfare and break chains. Using the Word of God rather than looking for Tony Robbins or someone else to set you free. So Lord, for all of us, including me, who are constantly manufacturing little idols, pictures of you that look more like us or, or more the way that we'd expect you to be rather than what the Bible tells us you are. Lord, for all of us, I pray for an increased awareness of that. Holy Spirit, I pray that you open our eyes and our minds to how we misrepresent you in our daily lives, in our devotion and in our prayer and our time. Lord, that you'd You'd teach us to be like Hezekiah, that we'd rise up and we'd smash those idols. That we'd smash those idols and that we would worship the one true God as you are described in your word. And Lord, for those of us that are are struggling to read the Bible and for those that have excuses for not reading it at all, Holy Spirit, I ask that you help us to surrender Surrender those excuses. Surrender those protestations. Help us to admit that even if we find it challenging, it's not because of any fault in the word itself. It's, it's fault without, with us. Help us to sort out our priorities. Teach us to have some resilience, Lord. Teach us to grit our teeth and pray and say, God, this is your word. Make it come alive to me. I'm not going to stop reading until you make it come alive to me, Lord. God, give us a love for your word and a desire to obey it. And Lord, for those of us that are struggling to know your will for our lives, we're just not sure of what you want us to do. We love you. We come to church. We we get involved, but we're just not sure. What, What is it, God, that you specifically want for me? Lord, you promised that we would know your will. That we don't need to search far and wide or base our hopes on temporal, fallible things. That you reveal your will for us in your word. Lord, as we dive into your word, reveal your will to your people. In Jesus' name. And Lord, now with uh, all of these things in our minds, we choose to lift up our eyes and look to you, God. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Amen.